Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of the Modernist Pizza Podcast is brought to you by Miyoko's Creamery. Revolutionizing pizza with our world-changing, new, liquid vegan pizza mozzarella. Loved by chefs and foodies, Miyoko's liquid vegan pizza mozzarella melts, browns, bubbles, and tastes just like a great cheese should, with 98% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than traditional animal milk mozzarellas. Why does your mozzarella matter? Because if dairy farms were a country, they'd be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Americans eat over 3 billion pizzas a year. That's a huge opportunity to make a difference. The Miyoko Solution delicious cheese made sustainably from plant milk. Founded by renowned vegan chef Miyoko Shinner, Miyoko's is the world's most advanced plant milk creamery, pioneering the art of combining old world cheese making techniques with new innovative technology to craft mouth-watering cheeses and butters. To learn more about delicious liquid vegan pizza mozzarella, follow Miyoko's Creamery on social and visit miyokos.com today. Use the code MODERNIST to get 15% off your next order. This episode is dedicated to Ann Saxeby, a friend to many and the greatest apostle of American farmstead cheeses in this country. A truly beautiful human we miss dearly. Contribute to the Ann Saxeby legacy at slowfoodusa.org backslash Saxeby. Welcome to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. This is episode six, Franken Cheeses and Cherries on Top, Where the Buffalo Roam. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Along with Nathan Mervold, founder of Modernist Cuisine, and its head chef, Francisca Magoya, who together co-authored Modernist Pizza, a 1,700-page book about the art, history, and science of pizza, we'll chew over the world's most popular food with the people who have been part of its story past and are shaping its yet-to-be-told future. Why is buffalo mozzarella considered a luxury cheese, and what makes it different from regular mozzarella anyway? 
why don't more people make mozzarella at home? We'll talk to the makers of DIY mozzarella kits, how Wisconsin brick cheese defined Detroit-style pizza, and how to make your own Franken-cheeses like St. Louis's Proval, as well as why vegans are nuts for imitation cheeses. Modernist Cuisine will teach you the tricks of infusing your mozzarella for extra flavor like you've never had before, even before you put on your pepperoni, pineapple, anchovies, and our mayonnaise. Nathan cuts to the curd. Cheese is a fascinating thing to make because almost all cheese shares a huge amount of the same steps, the same ingredients, the same infrastructure, if you will. And the difference between the different cheeses that we know are often very subtle things. So to make cheese, you start off by heating up some milk with an enzyme called rennet. Sometimes you have fermented that milk up front, so it has a little bit of an acidic tang to it. Some cheese, you, the tang of the acid is the only way you coagulate it. But anyway, you coagulate it to get a curd. Then if you heat that curd up, it will start to melt. But that curd becomes quickly very fibrous. And if you try to stir it, it looks like ropes. So a, a broad term that people have made for cheese for which the, this ropiness is important is a pasta filata, a folded or stretched cheese. And so there's a bunch of cheeses that have this property that they start off, you melt the curd after the curd sets, and then you stretch it. And after that, you can then do some other things to it. But mozzarella is a very simple cheese where after stretching it, you basically form it into a ball or into a braid and let it sit in some brine uh, for a, 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 just a day or so and you're done. It has the disadvantage that it doesn't keep. So you know, one of the early big motivations for people making cheese was to take milk, which is a fabulous food, but put it in a form that would keep without refrigeration. And to do that, you need to both put a lot more salt in the, the cheese and you need to dry it out and that makes it hard. And that's what gives you a cheese like a Parmesan or other hard grating cheeses. So mozzarella was a great cheese or a terrific cheese if you didn't need it to last for very long. This is no cursory cheese we're talking about. Mozzarella's shelf life may seem short-lived, but its history has been shredded. But what is the true definition of what we affectionately know as mozz? Francisco fills us in. I mean, you use what you have, right? And so if you look at Fior de Latte mozzarella, this is a cheese that has been in existence or a version of it since the 1100s. Originally, it looked very similar to what Fior de Latte looks now, but it was more like in a block form and it had a slightly, well, a very different name. It was called Provatura. If you think of, you know, uh, fresh mozzarella or Fior de Latte, it's very, it's a very wet cheese. It's high in moisture. If you were to bake a, uh, like a New York style pizza with that cheese, you'd have like a bit of a, a puddle situation with all the water that leaches from the cheese. It might not all evaporate by the time the pizza comes out where you know the shredded pizza or you know has many different names like part skim mozzarella cheese or some people just for ease they'll call it pizza cheese it's lower moisture cheese it doesn't resemble 
fresh mozzarella at all. You know, they have the same name, but it, it might as well have a completely, you know, different name because they're not very, I mean, I would never put them both in the same category. But it melts differently. It has a more like yellow color. It will brown. It has a lower moisture content. So it, it's, it's able to like brown at the same time as your pizza cooks. And it has that stretchiness that we've learned to, um, you know, associate with that, you know, shredded mozzarella. What's your Mott's moment? Do you remember your first bite of the fresh stuff? The kind of cheese that changes you? Paula Lambert of Mozzarella Company in Dallas, Texas, remembers taking the train from Switzerland to Italy en route to art school. The golden glow of sunlight on ochre buildings made an everlasting impression, as did a salad highlighting said cheese. I was in Florence, and I remember it was a hot summer day. I was sitting in the shade of a building just on the Piazza della Signoria, and I tasted this tomatoes with fresh mozzarella, and I just couldn't believe what it was. And I kept asking the waiter, what is this? And he said, it's cheese. And I said, you know, it couldn't possibly be cheese. I was from Texas. I knew only about, you know, craft cheddar. Well, mozzarella in the United States was different than mozzarella in Italy. Uh, mozzarella in the United States was created for the American market. They needed a cheese that could travel and la across the country and last for a long time. And that's when they created low moisture mozzarella. But in Italy, it's always been high moisture fresh mozzarella that you would buy on the day that it was made. That's what I loved, and that's what I had in that salad. After years of studying abroad, Lambert came back to Texas, wanting to introduce people to the fresh stuff. She started her cheese company in the early 1980s, and don't get me wrong, Texas is known for longhorns, but dairy cattle? Texas is a great uh, producer of quality milk, but I didn't know that when I started. When I started, I went to a small cheese factory outside of Perugia where I had been a customer. I just asked them, how much does a mozzarella machine cost? Because I thought it was like pasta. You just poured milk in and cheese came out. That was what I thought. And so anyway, they were very sweet to me and very patient with me at this small cheese factory. And they told me about a cheese school for professional cheesemakers in northern Italy. It was a trade school. And I went up there and met the director, and he agreed to send a professor to Dallas to teach me to make mozzarella once I had remodeled this little building and created a cheese factory. So I didn't know how to make cheese, and I learned in Dallas from an Italian cheese professor who came to teach me. Talk about importing. Lambert honed her cheesemaking skills, ensuring that all her products were handmade. This set her apart from the mass market mods. But it also limited her scope at first, as she didn't sell to pizzerias, only restaurants. The first chefs were Stephen Powell's, Dean Faring. These are two chefs that created Southwestern cuisine back in the mid to early 80s. And uh, those were my customers. There were continental restaurants in Dallas that had Italian and French chefs, and they wanted a product like the one I was making. And that's how it developed. It's so interesting to hear because I feel like so much of the food down there was 
this Southwestern fare, Mexican food, even Tex-Mex, how did an Italian product make its way into those kitchens? Well, because it was the time of uh, American cuisine was taking hold and there were different uh, chefs in different parts of the country that were championing the foods of their regions. And so Southwest was just a part of that. And so my fresh mozzarella fit right in there. And then I started making cheeses that had the chilies and herbs in them that they were using in their cooking. And that's how Lambert made mozzarella even more local, adding the essence of the area to her milk. It was actually a trip to Oaxaca to see famed cookbook author Diana Kennedy that further made her realize how international the idea of mozzarella really is. Queso Oaxaca is actually a type of mozzarella. And I discovered that when I went to Oaxaca in Mexico to learn to make it. And it's a string cheese. It's just that during the process, instead of being formed into a ball when the when the curds are molten after they've been mixed with water, it's stretched out into a long ribbon and it's salted and then wound up like a ball of yarn. And that's what queso Oaxaca is. Though when it came to mozzarella, Lambert found herself more of a purist. Well, except for interjecting a little bit of smoke into her cheese. This is barbecue country after all. Let's talk about one of my favorite ones of yours, the smoked mozzarella. You use local pecan shells. Tell me about why you do that and what that flavor is like. Well, it's an incredible flavor. It's almost as intense as and smoky as a bacon would be. And um, I came up with that idea many years ago from a man who was selling pecan shells. And uh, he was told me that they were great for smoking, and I tried it, and it's just the most wonderful flavor. And so... We have these, uh, we make two cheeses that we smoke over these pecan shells. One is a scamorza, which is a firm mozzarella, and one is our regular fresh mozzarella that's a traditional soft mozzarella. When I think of Lambert's story, the soundtrack is that of the classic cowboy song, Home on the Range, you know, the one where the buffaloes roam sometimes referred to as the unofficial anthem of the American West. When I mentioned this to Francisco, it evoked an Italian city with an animal of a different kind. Rome was incredibly influential in getting water buffalo to Campania because, you know, the empire extended so far that, you know, they were able to procure basically animals, ingredients, and whatever you can think of from different parts of the world. Water buffalo is not from Italy. And there are different stories as to how and when water buffalo uh, made it to Campania, but it was an animal that we saw in some, you know, Roman sculptures that, uh, you know, it made these appearances that unless you're paying attention, you don't really know what you're looking at. Mozzarella di bufala is made with buffalo milk, which is a different species of cow. It's a little bit larger, but... The size doesn't really matter. What matters is the fact that these, the milk from uh, buffalo cows has a higher fat percentage. I think it's about twice as much as regular full-fat cow's milk. And it produces a cheese that is, it has more, I would say, like a character. I would say, like, if you had a fior de latte, it tastes like a regular, let's say, like a regular 
baguette, for example, right? Where a fior de latte will taste like sourdough bread. So it has more nuance. It has more of that like acidity. It is still a little bit richer because it has a higher fat content. And, you know, there's a lot of pizzaiolas who prefer one over the other. And the ones that prefer to use fior de latte is because they feel like uh, mozzarella de bufala is too nuanced in flavor. It's costlier, so it kind of like loses that essence when you cook it with tomatoes and dough. And the people who really like to use it on pizza, they like it uh, because it has a little bit more of that like DLP prestige. And, you know, it's a, it's a, a finer, more expensive cheese. It's not better. I think they each have their own place, but definitely uh, mozzarella di bufala has, uh, you know, calls for a higher, higher price tag and uh, has more appreciation in that, you know, higher end sort of cheese. In Spruce Grove, Pennsylvania, Caputo Brothers Creamery recently added a buffalo herd to one of their farms. Now, all their cheeses have about 5 to 10% water buffalo milk in them. Their specialty, cultured curd mozzarella. Their company, named after David and Rin Caputo's sons. So this is truly next generation cheese. So up until about a year ago, technically by Italian law, you could not call something mozzarella unless it was made from the milk of a water buffalo. And that water buffalo was born, raised, calved, milked, and the milk was produced into cheese in the regions that the Italian government had defined. This is where mozzarella di buffalo can be made. By Italian law, if you were not all of those things, then you were not mozzarella. So fior di latte was the term that was adopted for any of a fresh mozzarella style cheese that was either made with a milk other than water buffalo, or it was made outside of the defined regions. Because we're in Pennsylvania, because, you know, up until about a year ago, we we used exclusively cow's milk, our cheeses did not meet the Italian law for being called mozzarella. So our fresh mozzarella, we always referred to as fior di latte. So it's really the only difference. One is more the the traditional, it's, it's the analogy I always use is, you know, you can't call something champagne unless it was made in champagne with champagne grapes. So my husband's family is originally from Italy. They're from the area kind of between Naples and Foggia. And Caputo literally translates to large head, (laughs) one with a big head. His family immigrated here in the early 1900s, and he grew up in the New Jersey area. His family owned a bakery in Newark for about 80 years. And actually, they unfortunately closed it just just before he and I met. He had not been interested in in following on that path. Um, He had actually gone to school for business and was in pharmaceutical sales when I met him. And I had taken a very different path. I was an Air Force brat, no Italian heritage, kind of grew up all over, uh, including a pretty good stint in Europe where I got was fortunate at a very young age to travel through Italy and fall in love with it. 
And when we met in our late 20s on the Jersey Shore, actually, I had gone to school for IT and was running the IT systems for Johnson & Johnson pharmaceutical companies. And so we met and, you know, had these very different careers that had nothing nothing to do with cheese making. But we fell in love. We got married in Philly. And uh, on our honeymoon, the second morning of our honeymoon, he woke up and said, you know what? I I don't want to do pharmaceutical sales anymore. I've always been really inspired by my family's love of food and Italian food. And I think I want to go become a chef. And I said, oh, great. No problem. (laughs) Let's do that. And so we did what all normal uh, newlyweds would do, I think. Six months after we got married, we quit our jobs. We put everything in storage. We moved to Italy and we went to culinary school in Calabria, Italy. He was going to be there for about six months and I didn't want to be away. And I said, well, I'll go through the program too and I'll just come back and go back into the IT world. But uh, about day three into the program, I knew this was it. You know, I had found my place and... And this is what I was going to do. And, you know, kind of my famous line is we were going to make 40 pounds of mozzarella and sell it at the local farmer's market. But about three months after we started the business, we got a phone call from Murray's Cheese in New York City. At the time, we were making the only fermented cheese curds that could be stretched into fresh mozzarella and they wanted it. And uh, maybe a few months after that, Anne Saxelby called us from Saxelby Cheesemongers and you know, she was really interested in what we were doing. And, and very quickly, we found out that we were right. This was an ingredient that chefs had been looking for. And, and you know, we kind of just hit it at the right time. And, and the, the business has been very successful as a result. Thanks to two opportune phone calls, Caputo Brothers found its way into the hands of the greater culinary community. Chefs were seeing mozzarella as an ingredient worth its weight. But how has this once commendable curd gone by the wayside? And so, you know, when the Italians first came to this country, that was something they could do because their milk source was right there. Their supply chain was very similar to what they had in Italy. You know, everyone shopped very locally. Everyone shopped daily. But as Manhattan grew up and the farms were then forced out of Manhattan and a little further out and a little further out, the supply chain got longer right? It's, it's the same thing that happened with gelato and, and how it evolved in, into ice cream by adding more sugar so it could freeze longer and travel further. You know, you had this cheese that needed to be eaten the day it was made, but now the farms are in upstate New York, let's say. Well, getting that cheese down to the, you know, mass populations was challenging if they still followed the traditional fermentation. And so, I believe what happened is one of our greatest gifts as Americans is we're just super industrious, right? We're like, there's got to be a better way to do this. So here's a cheese that's very perishable. By the time we make it and we get it to where the people are, it's no longer fresh. It no longer tastes good. So how do we give it a longer shelf life? And so essentially, a group of Americans figured out that if they took milk and they added vinegar or citric acid at just the right time, they could essentially trick the milk into thinking it was the same level of acidity as milk that had gone through fermentation to become mozzarella. So, you know, we all know that grape juice and wine are two different things, right? 
the thing that makes them different is fermentation. Industrialization radically altered the makeup of mozzarella in the United States, but so does fermentation. It changes the color, the flavor, and certainly the texture. This is what Caputo hopes will once again alter the course of what we know as mozz. If you look at a traditional Italian pizza that has fermented fresh mozzarella on it, you're probably a 10 inch or 12 inch pizza is going to have somewhere between an ounce and a half to three ounces on it. If you take American style mozzarella, because it's milk, it cannot actually melt in the same way that cheese can. You're actually going to put somewhere between six, eight, maybe as much as 12 ounces on that same size pizza to get the same amount of coverage. And and you don't have the same flavor, right? So if you go back to the grape juice versus wine analogy, when you bite into that, you taste it, you're going to taste more of that milk flavor than you are of the cheese flavor. If we want to take it more the fure de pizza route, which is a drier mozzarella. It's something that would be more like the grated cheese that you would see on pizza. That's something that, you know, basically, again, was an innovation of, well, if we want to keep it fermented so that we have a better melt and we have better flavor, we need to make it drier. And if we're going to make it drier, then we're going to have a longer shelf life with that. It's actually more closely related to a young provolone than a fresh mozzarella in that instance. And so, you know, that I think is really where we started to see, okay, well, this is something that now has a long shelf life that we can shred to make it easier to put on pizza. We can get a little better coverage on that. Um, And I think that's where you really see the, the explosion of pizza happen at that point, because you had the cheese that could then supply more of that mass market appeal. Mozzarella was once again crossing borders. While mozzarella may have moved away from taste and terroir and more into mass market appeal, it was the migration of these water buffaloes in the first place that really begs the question, how local were water buffalo to begin with? Nathan thinks he found their path. So it turns out that the buffalo in mozzarella de buffalo are Asian water buffalo. So the same sort of animal that you see ubiquitously in uh, India, for example. These Asian water buffalo got brought to Italy at some point in time. There's a lot of books and references would say that they're indigenous. Absolutely, completely not. Utter bullshit. Now, the question is, who brought them? And the dominant theory for a long time, oh, I should say the earliest concrete reference that historians have found is from around the year 800, 819, something like that, where there is a document that is talking about the prices of various things at a market in a town in Italy. And it has a price for cows and a separate price for buffalo. So how the hell did it get there? Well, I took it upon myself to try to solve this. And I thought, why on earth wouldn't the Romans have brought them? And we know that Romans imported tigers from Italy for the Colosseum. And we know that because 
the Romans painted them. They have these fabulous floor mosaics. Uh, literally last week, I was at a villa in Sicily, an ancient Roman villa that had been destroyed by a flood, and it preserved these fabulous mosaics. And those mosaics show people herding uh, tigers into cages and so forth for the uh, Colosseum. Well, they also show them catching all kinds of other animals. Well, I looked in both at that place in Sicily, at another Roman villa in Israel, there are mosaics of water buffalo. But then in Rome, we found a sarcophagus, very elaborately carved sarcophagus. And it was from the early Christian era in Rome. So this is a, a stage where the Romans had started converting to Christianity. And around the edge of the lid of this uh, sarcophagus, they had carved basically the Christmas story. And so there was a scene uh, that had the Madonna and little baby Jesus and the farm animals watching. <laughs> and by God, there's cattle and there's buffalo. So I think it's clear that the buffalo have been in Italy since the time of the Romans. I don't know that there was a continuous cultivation of them through that whole period, but uh, it seems pretty likely that there were. With twice the milk fat and an exponential amount of flavor, buffalo mozzarella is like heavy cream to milk, a whole different beast. That said, so are the animals. Craig Romini and Audrey Hitchcock of Romania Mozzarella in Marin County, California, found that out firsthand. It was my husband's idea with a little help from my brother. Um, my husband played baseball in college. He was very good. He went into the minors, and then he tried out for the Yankees, but he didn't get it. And um, going back to the minors, is it's a tough life. It doesn't pay well. It's really hard. So he decided to get out of baseball, and um, but he didn't have a plan B. And so he just got a job. He started off on Wall Street, and he didn't like that. And then he ended up in technology. He didn't love it. He was you know, pretty good at what he did, but he didn't love what he was doing. He didn't have any passion for it. So when we met in 92, he told me right away that this was a thing for him, that he was hoping that he could find something that he could be more passionate about and that he was on this kind of quest for something to do that he would enjoy more. But life happens and days and decades go by without any more pursuit. 2008, there was the financial crisis, which caused Craig to lose his job. He took six months off searching for a new one. It took five words written separately on post-it notes to figure out what he was searching for all along. The first was animals. He wanted to work with animals. He loved animals, all of them. Frogs to elephants. He wanted to be in the environment. He wanted to do something with the planet or environmentalism or just be outdoors somehow and maybe make a contribution to the planet. He loved food. He wanted to work with food in some way. He was the chef in our house. He was 
the grocery shopper. He knew all the best restaurants and all the best chefs. And I did not have a passion for food. I had a shared passion for animals, but I didn't have a passion for food. And I didn't know how to cook or anything. I mean, I could fry an egg, but. And then he knew he wanted to be an entrepreneur. And his last one was that he wanted to do something unique. And so he just, each one was written on a post-it and he stared at these post-its for a couple of weeks. And one day it occurred to him that if he made cheese, he could really satisfy all the post-its. Animals, food, environment, entrepreneur, unique. These five words changed the course of Craig's life. The irony or the serendipity of the story is that my brother lived in Italy for about a decade and he married an Italian girl and they came back to the United States to raise their family. And she was from Southern Italy and she was just beside herself that she couldn't find decent buffalo mozzarella freshly made here in the United States. And so for a long time, my brother had been saying to me, you know, there's this cheese that's made in Italy and nobody's making it here in the United States. And what a great business idea that would be. And maybe we should do that. And I, when my brother mentioned it, I thought, that's crazy. We don't know anything about agriculture or, or water buffalo or making cheese or we don't own a dairy. Well, like, how would we even do that? But Craig and I were kind of stuck on what kind of cheese to make, and I had forgotten about my brother's idea. And then one day I was talking to him on the phone and mentioned that Craig wanted to make cheese, and he brought up the buffalo mozzarella again, and suddenly it seemed like a possibility. In August of 2009, Ramini found a coastal California ranch for sale. By November of that year, they owned five water buffalo they bought off Craigslist. The water buffalo has double the quality milk as the cow. So it's double the butterfat, double the protein, half the cholesterol, and half the lactose. It seems like with the higher butterfat and the higher protein, the buffalo would be denser, but it's not. It's lighter, it's more airy, it's softer, and it's got flavor. I was going to say double the flavor, but in my opinion, cow's milk mozzarella has no flavor. It's like water. And I think that's why the caprese was invented, because you have to put tomatoes with cow's milk mozzarella, or you're just eating flavorless cheese. Whereas with my buffalo mozzarella, I don't like a lot of tomato. I really just like it with olive oil, basil, salt, and pepper. The tomato can tend to drown out the flavor, and the flavor in mine is a is a beautiful tang. It's got a real grassy terroir to it, and I just really like to enjoy that. So when I serve it, I serve the tomato on the side. I don't, you know, slice tomato and then put a slice of cheese on top of it and then the basil and the olive oil. I put a little tomato salad on the side and I let people slice into the mozzarella without the tomato first so they can actually appreciate the flavor of the cheese. But the other difference, which is interesting, is that because they produce such a high quality milk, they only produce half as much as a cow. In fact, they produce the equivalent of a goat. If you think about if I gave you eight ounces of milk and eight ounces of cream, you could drink eight ounces of milk, but you'd be hard-pressed to drink eight ounces of cream without having a tummy ache. And so they only require half as much milk to sustain their calves because it's so rich. But if you think of it this way, if I had a herd of goat, I could probably have a fifth of the property and a fifth of the hay cost to feed them. 
and the land to keep them, they're like five times more expensive to to care for, but you're only getting as much as the goat. And that's why, you know, people, not many, I'd say, you know, I can do a farmer's market and 98% of my customers don't quibble when they reach into their pocket and I tell them the price. Every once in a while, somebody just jumps back and their eyes pop out and they go, oh my God, how can you ask that much for your cheese? Well, I have to because I have to come up with all that extra land and food for them. I would be getting double the amount of product out of a cow. So, you know, you can you can afford to charge less, but for the buffalo, you have to support them with half as much milk and product. That's where their shared love of animals really came into play. It wasn't about the cheese at first. It was about the cattle. They became family right when Audrey needed them most. In 2015, Craig died from complications of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Audrey was left with the herd. I fell in love with the business when my husband started it. Of course, it was a lot easier for me then because he really was mostly responsible, so I didn't bear the weight of the stress that he did. I just felt confident in him. But when he passed away, at that point, I had run the operation by myself for a year while he was sick. So I had proven to myself that I could do it. And I had kind of, I was designing a house at the time, but I had kind of moved a bit away from architecture. And if that house, when I finished that house, I didn't have another project. And the idea of sending my resume and becoming an employee of an architectural firm again seemed like I I couldn't go backwards in that way. And I had always said to Craig that I thought that the only way to really make this work in the beginning was for us to maintain our careers that were making money, which would support the Buffalo business until it did start to make money. And I think that's part of the reason that I was able to do it in 2014 and 2015 was because I had that income from designing the house. Architecture doesn't require overhead investment. You know, I can start and stop design work anytime I want. I just go out and find a client. Well, there is finding the client, but the Buffalo business was an initial investment, a big initial investment. And if I stopped, I would have to immediately get rid of the Buffalo and get rid of the rental property. And the idea of regretting it and making that investment again and starting all over from the beginning seemed like I would never do that. So my logic was, look, we've made the investment. I have the animals. They're trained. I know how to make the cheese. I can do it on my own. I may as well carry on and see. I I may fail, in which case I'll know I tried and I can go back to my previous career. But to not try uh, didn't make sense to me. And then, of course, because I didn't even know what to do with the buffalo, typically in those situations, many of them would go to slaughter. And I love them, each and every one of them individually. I know their names. I can recognize them by their udder, by their behinds, by their face. They are my pets. I've bonded with them. And 
the idea of selling them to somebody who wouldn't treat them properly or having to slaughter them to save them from being treated improperly was far too painful with the grief that I was processing at the time anyways. And then the final one is, you know, this was my husband's dream and he wasn't able to live to see it through, but I felt as though he deserved to have that kind of little bit of legacy anyways. Even during these tough times, Audrey couldn't abandon her 80 buffalo, 24 of them being mothers, which during lactation were yielding a gallon and a half of milk per day. Audrey kept collecting it, making nearly 100 pounds of cheese a week. For someone who once thought she wanted to be a National Geographic photographer, she was face to face with the animals and her own humanity. We'd been to Africa a couple times. We actually did talk about moving to Africa when we first met. But at that time, he was thinking he's a new husband and he wants to provide. And he's like, I I don't know how to do that for you. And why do you want to do it? And I said, because I want a wildlife sanctuary. And that was the end of the conversation. But about a year before his death, we were at the ranch, hanging out with the buffalo, drinking a beer. And he looked at me and he said, can I get credit for giving you a wildlife sanctuary? So there's that you know, but there's also this serendipity part about it, which is there's some other purpose, some higher purpose that has pushed me into this. I didn't ask for it. And I didn't expect my husband to die and me to have to be doing this all alone. But here I am, I am doing it. And sometimes I feel like it's a choice of mine. Sometimes I feel like it isn't a choice of mine, but I do feel as though there's a purpose and a reason. those of us who don't have the land and latitude to raise our own cattle, home cheese making may seem out of reach. But since the 1970s, when Ricky Carroll moved to the foothills of the Berkshires in Massachusetts and got a bunch of goats, she's been making her own cheese ever since. She founded the New England Cheese Making Supply Company and has made it her business to teach others to do so ever since. People grind their own flowers and grow their own tomatoes for sauce, but why is homemade cheese a less likely occurrence? it's gaining popularity. It takes a little bit more effort. And the milk source is not as good as it used to be. So in other words, if milk, let's say, is pasteurized in, I don't know, California, let's say, and sold in Massachusetts, it's got to travel across the country. It's got to be put on the shelves, last a long time. So the temperature of pasteurization has gone higher and higher and higher. And then you end up with this ultra pasteurized milk, which is really, in my opinion, white water. And it doesn't make cheese. It doesn't make good cheeses. You can make some of the soft cheeses with it. Mozzarella, you can't make with it at all. What is the difference between non-pasteurized milk or less pasteurized milk and ultra that prohibits it from turning into curd? Well... The proteins are denatured in the process and the mozzarella won't stretch. If milk is pasteurized over about 170, 171, even at that temperature, you've got to be very delicate with the curd. 
over that, you can't stretch for mozzarella at all. You know, when we first started in 78, milk was pasteurized at about 141, 145, and then it went to 161, you know. So it keeps going up. Milk can be pasteurized to over 230 degrees um, Fahrenheit. And, you know, really you're just killing everything that's in it and it'll keep on the shelves in boxes or, you know, even in containers for a very long time. The more local you can find your milk, the better, because if it doesn't have to travel a long time, it's more likely to be pasteurized at lower temperatures. This is why supporting local dairy is so important. Carol's 30-minute mozzarella kit will have you stretching your own curds sooner than you're forming your dough. Mozzarella that we have in our kit. It's not the mozzarella that's made with the culture that's a longer version that we have made lots of times. But this is something that people can do at home with their families and have it in an hour's time rather than in a couple of days. Carol wrote a book in 2002 appropriately named Home Cheese Making. And while the practices haven't changed, the cheese making landscape has. There was a lot of dairy here before in the town that I live in. There was a a load of dairies. And I think transportation has been a factor because, you know, in older days, people wanted to get things locally because there wasn't a lot of shipping, transportation of product and people ate locally and people grew a lot of what they make. I think that the trend that I've seen happen over these 40 something years in business is that People are wanting to get back to knowing more about their food and the source of it and making their own and at least trying it. And I think there's more of that today than there was when we first started. Any way you stretch it, we're looking for that mozzarella to melt. When it's placed on top of a pizza pre-bake, it's expected to bubble and brown going through what we know as the Maillard reaction. Modernist cuisine decided why not add some color and flavor to cheese before it melts by infusing your milk for mozzarella? Nathan explains. Paprika and saffron and turmeric all have fabulous color, and they also have their characteristic taste. One that I don't think, I'm not sure we found a great pizza thing for, but one of my favorite things to do with cream is to infuse whole roasted coffee beans in it overnight in the fridge. And that takes a coffee essence that's completely different than the coffee essence you get if you don't have the fat soluble thing. So the coffee mozzarella is extraordinary. So far we haven't I don't recall if we have a pizza that's good with it, but it's fabulous in a caprese salad. One of the ideas was to try to do a red-eye gravy pizza. We added uh, squid ink to mozzarella de bufala because I wanted to make an all-black pizza. And so we had black dough, uh, which we did by adding some, basically, a pastry chef's finely ground um, charcoal to it. 
and this black cheese and a, a black sauce that was based on um, Italian squid-based sauce. So we put some squid on it too, or not. Well, it's visually stunning to have a black pizza. Mozzarella isn't as black and white as it used to be. Now you can literally taste the rainbow. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. It used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, you either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pellet pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni pizza ovens have continued to define the category with a carbon steel shell for insulation, optimized airflow engineering for precise temperature control, and new models with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas, to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between three fuels, fire to fire. So on days when you have time to chill out with a glass of wine in the wood smoke as your log heats up, you can. And for those nights when you're in a rush, all you have to do is hook up the gas, and at the time it takes to shape your dough and chop some topping, your uni oven will be ready to go. Learn more at uni.com. That's O-O-N-I.com. We've mainly been talking about one kind of curd, but pizza cheese isn't finite. Have you heard of quattro formaggi? A combination likely dating back to the 18th century from Lazio, Italy. It's a quartet blend of mozzarella and three other cheeses, which used to depend on the region it was served in. There's a template, though. One creamy, one soft, one hard, and one mature. Gorgonzola, Fontina, and Parmigiano-Reggiano are typical complements, but I've also seen ricotta, robiola, taleggio, and pecorino. Even non-Italian cheeses, ranging from Swiss to blue-veined, have made their appearance. But it's the border-crossing Swiss cheese that's most interesting to me. There's one specific type of Swiss cheese, simply known as brick, that has become an interstate, and now international, hit of pan pizza. Did you know that Michigan's Detroit-style pizza started with a cheese from Wisconsin? An American original, brick cheese was developed in 1877 in Wisconsin by John Jossie, a Swiss-born cheesemaker. About 20 miles from its origin, the tiny town of Teresa, Wisconsin, the Widmer family has been making their version of brick since 1922. Now, Joe Widmer, the third generation, well, fourth if you count his children, now makes over 350,000 pounds of brick a year, much of it going to Michigan. Well, we're a small town, maybe about 1,200 people in older Main Street, where a lot of the businesses did close down over the years. We used to have a bakery, a shoe store, a furniture store, funeral home. But it's a beautiful little town. The Rock River horseshoes through it. It was named after uh, the first mayor of Milwaukee's daughter. When he retired, he moved up here and started the village of Theresa. Well, the Germans came in, and they pronounced it Theresa. So it's both Theresa and Theresa. In the 1800s, the Germans brought the first cows to Wisconsin. They traveled across the U.S. 
when they got to Wisconsin, they saw the same plants and, you know, the right terroir as uh, in uh, Germany. So they stopped here with their cows. So this is where the milk was. So the Swiss, Italian, French cheesemakers, when they came to America, where they go where the milk was, Wisconsin. And most of the cows in my neighborhood here are Holstein cows, the black and white ones, as are most of them in the state of Wisconsin. So when my grandpa bought the plant, he bought a set of bricks. Our product is so authentic, we're still using the bricks my grandfather used in 1922. Now, there's two types of brick. The original washed rind is a stronger, stinkier kind. And when people didn't like strong cheese back way in the beginning, when my uh, grandfather was here, you'd wax it to cut the air off, and it would get more and more flavor with time, but it wouldn't pick up the predominant odor or earthiness of the original type. So in the late 50s, early 60s, we started making a milder version also. We vacuum packed that one. And uh, that's when it's mostly used in, in these uh, pizza parlors to make the Detroit-style pizza. Joe grew up using brick cheese in place of mozzarella way before the Detroit-style trend was a thing. It was its melt and stretchability that made all the difference. What my mom always used was uh, brick cheese because we're cheesemakers and uh, it's got a lot more flavor than the traditional mozzarella that they use on pizzas. Our brick is a lower moisture brick. You can have brick cheese all the way up to 44%. And a lot of cheesemakers do that while you're selling water. But a, a higher quality cheese always has less of a moisture and uh, it melts differently too without all that water in there. I think the stretchability and everything, you know, like when you take a bite and it stretches and that, uh, it comes easier with a brick cheese on it. And the, the, the brick cheese has a more nutty, rich flavor uh, than the mozzarella. It, it's uh, completely different. So what's nice about it for people that are used to mozzarella on their pizza, it's good to be able to try something different. And I think that when these pizzerias started doing the Detroit-style pizza, and I don't know why they did, uh, people were very interested in trying something different, and it's going over very well. The gravitational cheese pull of Monroe, Wisconsin, the Swiss cheese capital of the USA, found Klondike Cheese Company, makers of Bullholzer Brothers brand brick cheese, producing more brick cheese than they ever expected, recently expanding their facilities to accommodate demand. Alan Hendricks functions as a corporate chef and has seen the Detroit-style popularity skyrocket, and not just in Michigan. You know, it was back in Detroit at Buddy's, the tavern, and they created the Detroit-style pizza. Kind of the individual characteristics of it are, you know, the focaccia-like crust and the use of ground brick cheese, and particularly placing that cheese around the edge of a blue steel pan, which legend has it, it came from the auto industry. And the butterfat content of the cheese and the high temperatures that the product's cooked at, the cheese itself kind of forms a frico or a crust on the edge, giving it its characteristic crunch and look. What's really interesting is the Detroit-style pizza craze that's going on all over the country. I mean, we're shipping to Portland, Oregon and Tampa, Florida and you know Pittsburgh and 
New York and other locations because there's a lot of interest in this pizza because it is it is different and uh, it is its own build. So what is the slogan or tagline for brick? It melts well. Um, if you're pitching it to a new client, what do you say are its uh, most defining characteristics? Well, again, two things. One, it's a Wisconsin original, and not all brick cheese is created equal. In my thoughts, it has to be a brick-shaped form cheese that's individually brined. There's a lot of brick cheese made in blocks, like a 40-pound block, and cut down into loaves. And the way to truly, when you see the whole form, you can tell is if the if the outer surface of the cheese loaf is smooth, it probably came out of a block. But the tagline or the slogan we still use today is, it's the authentic cheese for a Detroit-style pizza. Swiss cheese makes another appearance in St. Louis's Provel, which is actually a processed cheese made by combining cheddar, Swiss, and smoked provolone. I don't mean it's a shredded blend, it's an amalgamated cheese in and it of itself. But how do you make these Franken-cheeses? Well, sodium hexametaphosphate, of course. Modernist cuisine had the notion that emulsifier salts would help mesh cheeses together, even though they don't typically melt. Nathan decodes. Okay, so SHMP, its more common name is hexametaphosphate, sodium hexametaphosphate, as of the acids. And it's known in the, in the food world uh, as either SHIMP, which was that acronym, or HEX. And it is a phosphate, which uh, means it's, a phosphor, it's got phosphorus in it, which is, of course, in every plant. Phosphorus is completely essential to photosynthesis and plant growth. And it has the property that it will be an emulsifying salt. It will help your emulsion stabilize at a higher temperature. And it was sort of around 1900, two sets of people were trying, a set of people in Switzerland were trying to make a Swiss cheese that would keep. They wanted to make a canned Swiss cheese. Meanwhile, in the United States, a very enterprising cheese salesman who started off with a single cart and a single horse that he borrowed. His name was James Kraft. <laughs> he wanted to make a cheese that would keep. Because if, if it's 1900, you're selling cheeses, the cheesemakers don't have fridges, the customers don't have fridges, perishability is a huge problem to the penetration of cheese. Well, the one set of the people figured out that uh, sodium citrate, salt of citric acid, would work. The other figured out that a phosphate would work. What today we use the sodium hexametaphosphate. Um, and they both patented it around 1900. And the, uh, it became very controversial because other cheesemakers couldn't make it. Kraft had the patent. In Wisconsin, where the cheese lobby was very strong, they passed a law that they had to call the cheese treated this way, embalmed cheese, as opposed to canned cheese. And the descendant of that today is Velveeta, still a giant product for Kraft. And Velveeta 
or what's now they changed, went from involved uh, you know, in cheese to the official uh, USDA term is a processed cheese. Processed cheese melts great. Now the problem is, although Velveeta melts great, it tastes like Velveeta. And you could argue, I suppose, that if you wanted a classic American uh, burger joint, cheeseburger, that's the flavor profile you want. But it's not the flavor profile I want with a lot of other things. So, in fact, adding small amounts of these um, tiny, tiny small amounts, you know, fractions of a percent of either of those ingredients will allow you to make a cheese that doesn't break. These Franken cheeses aren't monsters. Instead, they're a way of combining cheeses for more depth of flavor, but also controlling how a cheese cooks. Francisco simplifies. It's a procedure that, that is, you know, we use a, a machine that's called a, a Vitamix, but you can also use a handheld blender. And it's combining basically these two cheeses. You know, we, we warm the cheese up. And that's why the Vitamix is, is important, because it's a machine that can warm up the cheese while it's blending. So it warms it up so that you can mix both cheeses and then the emulsifying salts just keep them emulsified. They keep them together. Another cheese that we put through this, um, you know, mixing, if you will, is Parmigiano-Reggiano. Because often when that goes in a pizza at the beginning, sometimes it might get too dark. But also Parmesan or Parmigiano rather, sorry, uh, doesn't, it doesn't have the stretchiness, right? I mean, it doesn't have to, but we thought if we combine this cheese with you know, pizza cheese with, with Partsky mozzarella, you get a very flavorful, you know, Parmesan-style cheese that, that stretches, that has that stringiness on a baked pizza. And those are the principles of good pizza cheese, melt and stretch. Miyoko Shinner has revolutionized the dairy industry by making cheese from plants instead of milk. It all started back in 2012 when she wrote a book called Artisan Vegan Cheese. As a longtime vegan, she started the company to fulfill a craving. Now, it has filled a void in the pizza cheese industry for those that are lactose conscious and intolerant and totally nuts about vegan cheese. It was going to be a very small enterprise with a retail shop. I was going to be making cheese sandwiches and and selling artisan vegan cheese to bicyclists uh, in my area. It's a big mountain bike area. And within three months, we just sort of blew up. We started distributing to uh, Northern California's uh, Whole Foods stores. And and here we are today. We're now in 30,000 stores across uh, United States and Canada. In the very beginning, we used only nuts, cashews. And what we do is we make a milk out of those cashews. We ferment the milk just as in dairy cheese making. And then we convert it to butter and cheese. Um, more recently, we have used other ingredients, including legumes, oats, uh, etc. Well, the first thing I was trying to do was to create a fresh buffalo-style mozzarella. It was a, a cashew milk-based, mild-tasting cottage cheese that got its structure from a combination of starch and agar, which is the uh, which is a seaweed, actually, sort of a gelatin substitute, and. If you marry those two together, um, tapioca starch and agar, you get this very gelatinous, this sort of very flexible gel. And so that's sort of how I created the texture of the mozzarella. They're both thermoreversible as well, which means that once you slice it and shred it and bake it in an oven, it melts. 
So that's how I went about setting, creating the very first mozzarella. And it has become an extremely popular item in the United States. It's one of our best-selling products. But more recently, uh, we thought, okay, let's just sort of reverse engineer the mozzarella. What do we need to do to get it to really melt on a pizza? While the starches and gums are mostly thermoreversible, it's not like in dairy cheese where you know you have the same exact amount of, of stretch and melting quality. It, it melts at slightly different temperatures. So we thought, okay, what could we do to really get closer to that texture and meltability? And so we had this sort of, I don't know, whack-a-mole idea to create a liquid mozzarella. So it starts out as liquid and it actually solidifies in the oven. After trying Miyoko's liquid mozzarella, it reminded me of something I had once had in Japan. It was more of a textural thing than a taste, but for a country that doesn't do a lot of dairy, I had to ask what the correlation might be. Unfortunately, a lot of vegan cheeses, because they are made primarily with gums and starches and oils, when they thermoreverse, when they melt, they just turn into sauce and there is no bite left whatsoever. The bite that you get from dairy cheese is obviously from the protein, the casein. But when we don't have that, we can use something like konjac, which is this fibrous root that creates that bite so that you've got more texture once the product is melted. I mean, this is revolutionary so much so that you put it on your bottle. Um, it melts, it bubbles, it browns. And it, it was that konjac for me. I, I've been to Japan a number of times, and uh, I'm assuming by your first name, you have some Japanese heritage. Yeah, I was born in Japan. I'm ja I'm half Japanese. I was born there lived, uh, and moved to the United States when I was about seven. Can you explain maybe the, the similarities and differences to vegan cheeses and tofu, if you think there are any? So tofu is often referred to as, as soy cheese. And I think it's because the process for making it is very similar to dairy cheese making. Um, you heat the soy milk and then you add a coagulant, uh, an enzyme. It's basically either uh, a salt from the ocean, which is what it was originally, magnesium chloride, or you can use potassium sulfate, I believe. But what it does is it coagulates the proteins in the soy and you now have curds that separate from the whey. And then you drain that and then you press the curds into a block of tofu, which is exactly the same process as making cheese, dairy cheese, except it's not fermented. Um, there are some dairy cheeses that aren't fermented as well, such as uh, ricotta, but most dairy cheeses do have a lactic acid bacteria added to it and gives it that sort of slightly tangy or sharp flavor. So that doesn't happen in tofu, but I think that's where the similarity ends is that it is in the enzymatic coagulation process. So we do the same thing with cashew milk. We go one step further. We also, we do coagulate it, but we also add a lactic acid bacteria that helps bring down the pH and create those cheesy flavors. Do you think your Japanese heritage helped you engineer these cheeses in that way? You know, perhaps because I kept thinking, okay, well, tofu is basically the same thing. So, you know, why is it that it doesn't turn into cheese? Why doesn't it melt? And it took me, I, you know, I, I just kept pondering that question for literally d years, maybe even decades. And then realized, you know what, maybe what I ought to do is ferment the milk first, that was uh, with soy, and then, um, and then try to coagulate it. What happens with a lot of plant milks is interesting. Um, if you ferment it before you try to coagulate it, the proteins don't work. 
I, I don't, I, maybe they've been denatured, but they don't coagulate anymore. And so we've had to figure out different ways to coagulate plant milk. Sometimes we have to ferment it ahead of time uh, before coagulation. And sometimes we have to coagulate and then ferment. So the, the, uh, the, the processes, the steps do change with different plant milks and every plant milk is different. And that's what makes it so interesting. In Japan, I've had mayo jaga, a pizza that's cross-hatched with mayonnaise, which may sound weird, but it's not far off from the emulsified cheese blends we've been talking about. They're just mixtures of fat and oil and water and are excellent on pizza. In the book, Modernist Pizza, Nathan and Francisco proclaim their aioli as an outstanding pizza topping option. There are many pizza toppings in the world, aside from cheese, from traditional to neo-traditional, and some may come across as controversial. What's the most peculiar thing you've had on top of your pizza? For many, pineapple on pizza is most polarizing. But did you know it didn't begin in Hawaii? Rather, a polar vortex. Nathan demystifies fruiting your pie. I don't see any reason you can't put anything delicious on top of your pizza. But there's a set of folks who will put weird shit on pizza. And that's that's the phenomenon I call it. It's the weird shit on pizza phenomenon. And they do it either for shock value or as a complete novelty or some other thing. And yet the things they put on the pizza aren't, from my perspective, super well chosen for either flavor or texture. That's true when you get like an everything pizza that has got piles of vegetables and different kinds of cold cuts and blah, 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 tons and tons of stuff on top. You know, tons of stuff only works if those tons of things, when eaten together, have great synergy, which does occur in many things in cooking. You know, one of the famous novelty things to put on pizza is pineapple, which is in the so-called Hawaiian-style pizza, which we have traced with good reliability, was invented in Toronto, of course. Um, it, it seemed to a uh, guy running a pizza restaurant there that it was a wonderful, sunny, Hawaii-like thing to do, and it might catch somebody's eye in the middle of a Toronto winter. Now, there's plenty of people who, like, hate pineapple on pizza. And yet one of the great pizzolos of Italy uh, Franco Pepe has, subsequent to me being there, has uh, emailed and said he actually has a pineapple pizza that's really good, and I tend to totally trust that guy. He he does a spectacular job of mixing ingredients that you never would have thought of, I wouldn't have thought of anyway, as being terrific on a pizza. Mike Olson worked in accounting. He started making pizzas at his friend's small bakery that operated out of a garage in Mesa, Arizona. A weekend pop-up turned into a regular gig at a cidery. Spelled M-Y-K-E, Mike's has turned its underserved suburban food scene into a destination for fruit on top of pizza. We're right smack dead middle in the desert. So it's, you know, Mesa's very hot for most of the year. Well, maybe not most of the year, a quarter of the year, uh, the high temperature is over 100 degrees. We're st- today is like the first like kind of cool day. I think our highest was to be 70. You know, it's it's in the desert, so 
lots of cactuses, lots of palm trees, lots of uh, small trees with, 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 with little leaves, lots of dirt, lots of, lots of rocks. Yeah, it's a desert. I was surprised to find so much orchard fruit on Mike's Pizza, especially in such an arid region. A peach pie shine like a desert sun and has become Olson's signature pie. Our peach pizza, it's a seasonal pizza. It's one that we do every year. And it's one that I like just, you know, look forward to just when, when August rolls around and peaches come into season. We all get really excited about it here. A month and a half ago in August, we sold like 100 more pizzas that week than we had the week before. I started that one just because I love peaches so much. And I noticed there was a couple other pizza makers who were doing peach pizzas. Uh, for example, Sarah Minnick from Lovely's 5050 in Portland, Oregon. I'm, I, she may have been the first person I saw put peaches on pizza. I can't remember, but she does one every year as well. And then um, I had a peach pizza in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, to the north of us at uh, Pizza Coletta a few years ago. And so I was just kind of inspired by that. And then it went through a couple iterations before settling on the one we do now. So we just, we have the fresh peaches, which are from Utah. There's a woman here in Mesa who gets a truckload of fruit every week from Utah during kind of the the fruit season. That kind of is a special connection for me because I have so much family in Utah and I was born in Utah. And we also put some crispy sage on there. That was an idea that my business partner kind of sparked. Uh, He had mentioned that sage and peaches go really well together. And so I tried to find a way to combine those. We, we end up uh, frying the sage um, just to crisp it up and kind of tone the flavor and the texture down. And um, that goes really well with the fresh peaches. And then we put some pistachios on there just to kind of add some texture and some savoriness. And that one's kind of like a nod to Chris Bianco. He has a pizza at his pizzeria, the Rosa, which, is, which has uh, pistachios on it. Our cherry pizza, I started that one a few years ago. I was just at the grocery store and I saw a bag of cherries and I thought, you know, that would be great on pizza. And so we tried it out and we all loved it. So it kind of became one of our recurring seasonal pizzas. That one's a little, uh, a little more rare because cherry season is so short. But the cherries, again, those come from Utah, from the same region where my, my mom grew up picking fruit with her family. I like seeing that you're putting fruit at the forefront of a lot of these pies because, you know, while tomatoes are fruits, botanically they're classified as berries. Um, and I mean, even cherries are droops, they're stone fruit. But what is it that's so different about putting a fruit on a pizza than just putting tomato on a pizza? I mean, the only thing I can think of is perception. And I think that goes with a lot of pizza toppings. I mean, that's one thing I think that, that Chris Bianco tries to do is, is using seasonal products that are endemic to the area here. And that's something that Sarah Minnick in Portland at Lovely's 5050 does. She uses, I think, all seasonal and local produce. And so you end up with some kind of like unconventional combinations. But I think if you're open to it, I mean, those are the best pizzas I've ever had in my life. So to me, it makes sense to try and kind of go beyond the conventional pizza toppings and kind of maybe push a boundary a little bit and end up with something that might really you know, surprise you and please you. I couldn't go without mentioning the most popular pizza topping of all time, pepperoni. In 1978, Darren Izzo's grandfather opened a small meat locker in Columbus, Ohio, which eventually grew into Izzo's Sausage Company. It wasn't until the 1980s Pizza Wars that a regional chain called Domino's asked them to start making pepperoni for them. That became the Izzo Family Endowment. 
so pepperoni is not a salami, as you may know. It's classified as a dried sausage. So it, it kind of like fell into like our wheelhouse. That's why we're called Ezo Sausage Company and not Ezo Salami Company. The big difference is probably in the grinding style, the curing style, the fermentation style. There's there's a lot of different things that go into our products compared to like maybe a cacciatore or a like a copa, like the salumi salami area. We we make a couple salamis, but but pepperoni is is kind of its own its own world. Well, the the name itself also means something outside of the context of sausage. What does pepperoni mm. mean? Pepperoni in Italian is is a it would probably be more like that capsicum or the like uh, like a long hot pepper or something like that. Um, do you use those ingredients in your pepperoni? We do. We do use um, capsicum, chili peppers along those lines. I've even tried to figure out a way to bring over and and grow and harvest uh, Calabrian chilies, but that's a very difficult thing to do. Well, because is pepperoni derivative of Soprasata from Calabria, or is it its own American thing? You know, I've always I've always thought it was its own American thing. I I would be hard pressed to even find an Italian that would want to claim that it's anything like Soprasata. You know, if you ask someone to smoke a Soprasata, I'm sure they would look at you like you had two heads. I, th- I think the the smoking of the of pepperoni is also like a very American thing. That you know, it's like bacon. Like, what's the big difference between bacon and pancetta? It's that smoking process. You know, I I, d- I do believe it is a. I would say it's an Italian American thing mm-hmm. specifically. Whereas Domino's may have popularized pepperoni, there are claims that its origins on a pizza began in New Haven, Connecticut. But what is the allure of pepperoni anyways? I think it's it's that tangy kind of like light acidity, the the fattiness. I say the thing that that kind of makes us stand out is our lack of grease and oils that render out from our pepperoni, but it seems to be something that people really do gravitate towards. It's it's those those spicy oils that bite that you get from from ours in particular that's what draws people towards our product is people tell us all the time it actually feels like you're really biting into uh, a a real piece of meat Um, we get a good bacony crispiness around the edge of of our pepperonis our classic and our curling pepperonis so how does the cup happen and You were talking about optics, too. Have you seen buffalo-style, not chicken, but buffalo-style pizza with all the pepperoni cups? Oh, yeah, yeah. We we have a pretty decent presence in buffalo as well, and that's where our supreme pepperoni comes from. We developed that with Supreme Pizza Supply, which is now Latina Boulevard Foods in Buffalo. And that's one of our more popular pepperoni styles, the cup and char with the black edge that caramelizes when it cooks up. I, I love that style of pizza and, and pepperoni. Now, how much pepperoni do you sell? And what is that per capita 
of all the things that you sell through your company? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a majority of what we do by a long shot because we do Genoa salami, hard peppered salami, bulk sausage, and the pepperoni is, is a majority of that. I mean, how popular a pizza topping do you think pepperoni is? Of all the pizzas that are sold out there, what percentage well, do you think is topped with pepperoni? Let me ask you this. Do you consider cheese a pizza topping? For the sake of this question, let's say cheese is, is a given, even though I do love a marinara pizza or, a, you know, uh, let's, let's just say, again, for this, for this question, that cheese is, is just a standard element of pizza. Then I'm going to say pepperoni is the number one pizza topping in America. I, w- I would say during those, those pizza wars, when it was, when it was Domino's, Pizza Hut, uh, Little Caesars, all that. When when that was going on, Donato's up here. They're out, of, you know, in, in Ohio and Michigan, and then you know, Papa John's came along, and all those all those huge chains were were happening. Jets, Marcos, as those chains grew, I mean, it was just it was the it it had to have been the the number one topping, and I and I've heard that. It had something to do with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Of the cartoon's main characters, four anthropomorphized turtles that knew ninjutsu, it was Michelangelo and Raphael who most often ordered pepperoni. Pizza artists in their own right, a generation of pizza eaters gravitated to pepperoni. So much so that over a quarter billion pounds of it are consumed annually in America, and over one-third of pizzas have it as a topping. So whether you're an extra cheese or a pepperoni person, it's not what's on the inside that counts. It's what's on top. Thank you to our sponsors, Uni and Miyoko's Creamery, our guests, Paula Lambert, Rin Caputo, Audrey Hitchcock, Ricky Carroll, Joe Widmer, Alan Hendricks, Mike Olson, and Darren Izzo. For our next episode, Ovens and Equipment, we survey the multitude of pizza-making ovens around the world, why wood is the romantic choice for fuel source, how one pizzeria had to burn to the ground to reinvent themselves, what the first steps of building your own oven are, and how to take that portable pizza oven from the backyard to realizing your own brick and mortar. Not to mention how pizza trucks are driving the pizza revolution. Oh, and pans. Because who doesn't love a pan pizza? This episode of the Modernist Pizza Podcast is brought to you by Miyoko's Creamery. Revolutionizing pizza with our world-changing, new, liquid vegan pizza mozzarella. Loved by chefs and foodies, Miyoko's liquid vegan pizza mozzarella melts, browns, bubbles, and tastes just like a great cheese should, with 98% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than traditional animal milk mozzarellas. Why does your mozzarella matter? Because if dairy farms were a country, they'd be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Americans eat over 3 billion pizzas a year. That's a huge opportunity to make a difference. The Miyoko Solution, delicious cheese made sustainably from plant milk. Founded by renowned vegan chef Miyoko Shinner, Miyoko's is the world's most advanced plant milk creamery. 
pioneering the art of combining old-world cheese-making techniques with new, innovative technology to craft mouth-watering cheeses and butters. To learn more about delicious liquid vegan pizza mozzarella, follow Miyoko's Creamery on social and visit Miyoko's.com today. Use the code MODERNIST to get 15% off your next order. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.